are listening to PPEs, Practice, Politics, Education, and Solidarity. This is a podcast series curated by the Critical Filipina Filipino Studies Collective to highlight and uplift action and scholarship that is anti-imperialist, committed to movement building about the Philippines and the Filipino diaspora. This podcast is named PPE in honor of all the Filipinos, Filipinas working on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic all over the world and their continuing fight to work safely and with dignity. On this episode, Dr. Lorenzo Perillo, an assistant professor of dance at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I, Dr. Valerie Francisco Menchavez at SF State, is in conversation with the inimitable Dr. Tracy La Chica Buena a professor of Asian American Studies at Cal State Northridge and a core faculty member in the doctoral program in Ed Leadership. She also serves as the co-principal investigator for the CSUN Dream Center, Asian American Studies Pathways Project, and Ethnic Studies Education Pathways Project. She's also a member of the Project Rebound Community Advisory Committee. Professor Bonavisa teaches courses on race and racism, immigration, research methods, and in her research, she uses critical race theory to examine how education, immigration, and carcerality shape the contemporary experiences of Filipino, Filipina, Filipinex, and other people of color in the U.S., She's originally from the Bay Area. She loves to read, run, and as you'll learn more, jump rope. Hello, good morning, and welcome. Um, this episode is with Dr. Tracy Lachita Buenavisa, and I'm in conversation with Dr. Lorenzo Perillo. I'm so excited to be on this pod episode with the both of you. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Uh, welcome, Yay. Dr. Tracy Lachico Buena Vista. And just to start us off, um, I wonder if we can um, learn from you, what are you doing to find or retain joy in this um, point in the pandemic? Yeah, um, Val knows this, and, and maybe you know this too, Lorenzo. Um, I'm a runner, but since the pandemic hit, the thing that I've been finding joy in his jump rope. <laughs> it's so nerdy. Um, like, I think I was like randomly, well, you know, we had hella time, right? So I'm like, oh, now I have time to exercise, right? Because I didn't have to commute to work. Um, and then I think I was like randomly reminded of jump rope when I saw on an IG post by Art Nelson, Concordia, <laughs> about he how he jumps, like he does 5,000 jumps like a day which I don't know if you guys have ever tried Whoa. that, but but it's super hard. And that's just part of his workout, I think. Um, and I'm just like- It's like his warm-up, his warm-up. Yeah, exactly. 100 or his cool, is hard. His, no, yeah, it's like, maybe it's his cool down, I don't know. But art is like in super like good shape. And so I'm like, I'm like, oh, I remember jump rope. I used to jump rope when I was a kid. I used to um, do jump rope demos, the jump rope for heart. Um, <laughs> long like 30 plus years ago and then my friend uh Dr. Ifoma Ama um she also started to get into jump rope and like I'm just like oh is this like something that's happening right mm -hmm. and then so I asked Art and then Art recommended like these really bougie ropes which I love they're the cross ropes I should get like paid for them but <laughs> mm, hashtag ad I know hashtag ad um and then it actually I got them and then it actually took me like how many months to actually pull them out um and so that was just funny but when I started like it was like muscle memory um right so because I again like I used to jump rope as a kid and um you know it's three decades later and it was like riding a bike right I had like some muscle memory mm -hmm. I was just able to pick it up and then and then I just started looking for like um like you know tutorials online or on IG mm -hmm. and there's like this whole like community and it's like super nerdy but it's like super supportive um but what's dope which is relevant to this podcast is I think like Filipinos are the best jumpers in the world <laughs> really? oh my god yes there's like some of the best jumpers are Filipino like not only like in the Philippines but like in the diaspora and they all follow each other 
And I think oh they gosh. follow each other because it's hella white, right? Um, but they're hella soulful and like the shit they do is like amazing. And, and so like, I don't know. So oh there's like, a, so like there's this guy called Happy Fingers Jump. So look it up. <laughs> I'm on yeah. I'm giving him shouts out. Uh, like Happy Fingers. He like dances with a rope. He has this like rope manipulation. He does all these, mm. it's called like wraps. Like he wraps the rope around and does all these like things and it's amazing. And then there's like this young kid like, I don't know where he's at, but his like, his name is like John Joe. John Joe, Joe, hello Filipino. When I saw him, I'm just like, oh, he's hello Filipino. <laughs> John Joe. <laughs> but he's like amazing. He's like, he like flies. Like, like literally he does like quads. Like, he, yeah, What's amazing. A quad? a quad is like he can rotate the rope four times under in like one jump. Oh, I, I knew that. I was just doing it for the audience. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I actually, oh, I was thinking of this. I oh, like figure skater. Yes. Um, yeah. Dude, um, and then, dude. And, yeah. And then there's this guy in the Philippines. Um, he's like a college student. His name is like John Wong and he's amazing. Oh. Um, but the, I'm a new area of research. I don't know. Maybe. Well, you know, I was talking to, you know, me and Val communicate over IG all the time. And I was just, you know, it's true. It's like, we have like, uh, you know, we have like our little hashtag run Samas, like it's oh. like people who run and then, you know, then it, tra it translate into jump Samas. And then all, all of a sudden there's like, I know of like 40 other people who started jumping rope. Um, it's kind of amazing. Um, and yeah, but it's political, right? Because our work is so stressful. And mm. I think we're just finding ways to like be happy and to be healthy and, um, you know, I think that's what I'm missing from like the exercise fitness world is it's so rare to find uh, fitness people who are political. I know they're there, but you know, like um, it's always about like how to exercise, but there's never like, um, you know, there's never like why, right? Um, beyond like individual like health and well being um, or aesthetic, but there isn't, it's not about like, oh, we need to like freaking exercise because I just experienced racism and I need to productively like process that, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Or I need to like, I need to be fit for the movement, right? Like, mm. like protesting is hella work. It's hella exercise, right? <laughs> you hella sweat. And so it's just like, yeah, it's just, this, it's like a, a mechanism for like sustainability. Um, and I think we do it, but I don't know if we like collectively like talk about it. So, yeah, and I think like, just to build on that, um, I had a doctoral student just finishing up their qualifying exams and was making the intentional move not to go into academia. Um, mm -hmm. And because um, they had shared that like, there's not a lot of models of mm -hmm. scholars who are in academia who have a sort of balance around health um, yeah. And by health, I mean broadly, right? Mental yeah. health, physical health, like the, the balancing of between like academia, personal, political, you know, community work. And they were like, I don't want that in my life. And I think yeah. um, you're, you have been like, I mean, even before jumping, I was like, Tracy is crazy. She's running like <laughs> 10 miles, like with the little baby I was like when Eco was uh, like younger I was like how, how is she doing this but it, it's definitely something that you know um I think as someone who wants to be in academia for a while mm -hmm. I, I want to learn how to live in my body mm -hmm. in a healthy way because so much so much of what happens in our institution is so toxic to us like yep. like directed at us mm -hmm. you know so mm -hmm. and that totally puts the critical on critical filipino studies if you mm -hmm. want to like take it back to the um <laughs> take it back to the conversation space so really thank you so much for really um starting us off on that um i mean jumping us off or putting us or putting that as our dun, jumping dun. off point <laughs> I got to bring it back to Filipino humor too, you know, jumping off point. And let me um, pass the mic to Dr. Valerie Francisco Chavez. Yeah, you know, I think about um, Tracy, I've been, I've looked up to you for so long. And, you know, um, in terms of just being a Pinay scholar and also, you know, having shared um, 
like spaces here mm -hmm. in San Francisco, SF State, PEP sort of um, in the, as you were kind of leaving. Um, mm -hmm. But we wanna kind of highlight you, your story. I mean, where would you start your story and how does some of that um, kind of experiences of growing up as a Filipina, um, how has it shaped your research? Yeah, well, you know, Val, I remember you because you're my brother's homie, right? When he was at Cal State East Bay and you are at SF State and you guys were just organizing cross campus, right? Like, um, like Filipino students. Um, that, you know, and I don't know if you remember, but that's how I remember meeting you. I believe, I don't know if you came to my house, you know, and, and I don't know what it was. Like my, it might've been like a family party or something like that. But, um, you know, that's how I remember you. Um, and I think that's related to, you know, who I am, like as a scholar and where I start. Like, I just really think of myself as like this Pinai from Hayward, right? Who is just trying to do right for like my parents, my community, for, for working class Filipinos, right? Um, I think like my upbringing, like um, really seeing like the labor exploitation of my parents, um, that really provided me with like a strong like proletariat like analysis of like my material reality, right? Um, and I don't think I actually knew it or understood it until like I started college um, and then I met Filipinos who weren't poor <laughs> right like I'm like oh shit like you know like what's going on here um, and I was just so different um, because I commuted I worked my whole time in college like I don't where was know. that just just um, yeah, yeah I went I went to UC Berkeley um, you know it was like 1996 right after affirmative action was eliminated you know that's where I met Lorenzo a few years later because you know they were a few years apart right Lorenzo um, and I don't even know if you knew this but when I was in college I was literally working like 30 hours a week um, you know while enrolled full-time and I commuted up until like the last year when I'm like I really want a college experience and I just could not participate in a lot of the things that defined like a Filipino American-ness Right, like uh, even though like I was, you know, I try to be actively involved in like the recruitment and retention efforts and things of that sort. I just remember feeling like, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do what like everybody around me was doing. And I remember like one of the first times like I actually felt poor in my life was like, cause I never felt poor. Like I didn't know I was poor. <laughs> you know, you don't know because I was just in Hayward my whole time, like my whole life, right? And everybody had similar sort of like stories and their parents did similar things. Um, but I think I didn't know I was poor until some of, you know, our, our, our friends from Berkeley, right? Like. Um, a lot of them from were from LA, some of them were out of state and like Hayward was close. And so when they wanted food or they just wanted that like family like sort of space, like I would invite them over um, and my mom would cook for them. And I just remember one of the first times when they were surprised like where I lived and how small it was. Um, and I don't think I was embarrassed, but it was, it was just pointed out to me. Um, and so I was literally like, you know, like, like Lorenzo, like we're literally attending like college with um, students whose parents were like, you know, medical or business professionals. And again, that's not, not, nothing wrong with that, but you know, like they had, you know, their parents provided for them everything from like rent to cars to paying for them to go on spring break trips. Right. Like, I, you know, I remember when a group of friends like they all they all went to like Hawaii, like, you know what I mean? I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, like you know, like I could never do that, like as a, a spring break trip. Right. And I just oh, I think the thing that really got me, though, like the part where I started really sort of getting critical of sort of like what, who and what was around me was when, um, you know, like a lot of the Filipino Americans at Berkeley, they would call me ghetto um, like as a term of endearment. Um, but I like in hindsight, it was because it's like I was their proximity to black culture, right? Which at the time there was like hella good hip hop, 
<laughs> right? And I think being friends with me like legitimized their participation in like hip hop culture, right? Or like, you know, urban culture, right? Uh, and at the same time, like, I really feel like, you know, that time in the like 90s, right? The late 90s, it mm -hmm. was, um, it was the beginning of like this film cultural renaissance, right? Like Bindle stuff was really like blowing up and like, yeah. um, it, it was like, you know, it was like really middle-class and like affluent Filipinos who got to control the narrative of what a Filipino American experience looked like. And like, I wasn't in it, right? Um, and then at the same time, like even in organizing circles, there was just a lot of privilege like regarding what it looked like to be active, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, again, like I was working like 30 hours a week. I don't even, I, for me, it wasn't even a thing. Like, I didn't even know that was like, like hard because I had just been working since I was like 16. Um, uh, and so, you know, and so like, yeah, you know, and so sometimes I couldn't be as like, you know, active as I wanted to be, but I always knew I found peace, like in knowing that like my connection to the struggle was like a direct one. <laughs> right it was like a material one it wasn't like a it wasn't something to do right um and, so anyways to make a long story short i think that like um like my work on like philam experiences it just really tends to be shaped more by like this like really like grounded class analysis uh, mm -hmm. more so than like i think a cultural analysis which is what i think a lot of people come to philam studies with right um which is again it's not bad but that's just not where i start from right um i i think for a lot of philam scholarship the class analysis sometimes comes second right than like the racial analysis or the the cultural analysis um but for me it starts at, with a class analysis um and that's just that's that's my story right can you walk us through like then how, then how did you become a doctor <laughs> like how did you how did you choose like yeah like you know there it seems like education and cal and i don't know lorenzo if you want to yeah. chime in here like if cal what had you had similar or you know kind of experiences in that way because it is an elite institution you know an yeah. R1, a research I mean, one institution mm -hmm. all of that how did you then get to be like well i'm gonna keep going in education even if i feel so alienated yeah, well, you know, I started, I went to Berkeley and my major was biology. You know, this is what Lorenzo and I have in common. I um, too. Yeah, I exactly. Shout out you know, to and the it, bio majors. And VLSB right. for life. VLSB. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, and that was to appease the parents, right? Like, um, you know, I think, you know, in or I, I've, I've said this before, like in order for me to justify going to college, I had to basically demonstrate I was going to contribute, like materially contribute as a result of it. Right. And so I went in majoring in bio because my parents really wanted me to be in the sciences because they just knew that was going to secure like our, our financial future. Our, not just mine, ours. Right. Um, always operated as like a collective. And then um, you know, but in my mind, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a teacher. I actually wanted to go back to my high school and I wanted to teach bio. And the only reason I wanted to teach bio is because I had a teacher, Mr. Rodriguez, um, who was the advisor to our Filipino club. He, he was a Chicano, like Chicano activist and anything, right? And, and, he, and I remember him, you know, he was like, in hindsight, I'm just like, wow, like what a powerful, like man of color, like mentor. He was like instilling all these things and I had no idea and anything, right? I just thought he was just a cool professor and anything or, or teacher. Um, and I remember when I like was close to graduating and, you know, I, you know, we learned I got into Cal and I just remember him taking me aside and he's like, you know, I'm gonna retire soon and anything, you should go and anything, you should become a teacher and you should come back and take over and anything, right? And I'm just like, oh, I can totally do that. And you know, I'm, I consider myself first gen even though my mom uh, had college experience in the Philippines um, because I was low income and I didn't have anyone to guide me um, and anything, right? And so like, like those teachers, those mentors were super important and anything, right? To sort of guiding like pathways. And so in my mind, I went to Berkeley cause I was gonna major in bio and go back to my high school and be a bio teacher and make sure more Filipino kids went to college. Because even when I went to college, not a lot of people around me did either, right? 
like I think at that time it was like, um, you know, there's the, you know, I, I've come from Hayward Union City, you know, there was like a lot of like gang activity at that time. ABT was like super huge in Union City. There's all, you know, all these things. And so like, it wasn't like, like the mindset. And then you go to Berkeley it was like just after affirmative action was eliminated. And so there's all this like activism around like educational access and, you know, that, that, you know, that resonated with me. And so I don't think I actually had like trajectory to become a doctor or anything like that until I was that close to finishing. So even though Berkeley's a R1, it doesn't mean that every student that attends there gets that research exposure or experience. And I didn't learn how to do research really until my master's program. And I, I mean, like, y'all, legitimately, I only got into the SF State Asian Am master's program because that was Allison's like first or second year at SF State, and she just directly recruited me. And how Allison recruited me, and you know, Lorenzo probably knows this and anything, right? Is, you know, we went to college. One of my best friends in college was Garrick Makatangai, who is Ate Allison's cousin. Like I lived with him and everything, right? And like, so I'd go to the family parties. And I remember, I don't even know if Ate Allison remembers, but as a family party, and she's just like, what are you gonna do after you graduate? I'm like, I don't know. And she goes, oh, we're starting this new master's program in Asian American studies. And she knew like I had been doing like, you know, educational activism work. She's all, you should apply. And at that time they had spring admissions. So I was actually able to like apply for like, um, you know, I, I, I took one more semester to graduate. Like I had to finish up science classes that I had previously failed. <laughs> and then I was able to jump right into like the master's program. Um, and then when I was in the master's program, she was just like, okay, well, what do you want to do with this? Like, and anything where she's like, you know, uh, what do you want to do? Like when you're done, I'm like, oh, I just want to teach Filipinos, right? Like I want to, I want to, you know, do, and she goes, oh, then you should be a professor. And then she's like, oh, you should apply to UCLA. I went to UCLA. And I'm like, okay. And I have no idea what any of that shit meant and everything, <laughs> right? And I'll also say, so I was not competitive for the master's program at all, but Ate Allison and it's a new grad program, like, you know, and they have different requirements at the, you know, the states and everything, right? And so like experientially, I think I was, I was competitive, but academically I was not. Then, you know, then SF State, Asian American Studies, I was finally studying things that resonated. And so I actually did well and anything, right? And then um, I applied for the PhD in education at UCLA and I actually got, I wasn't admitted to the PhD program, I was admitted to the master's program. And I didn't know what that meant because I'm like, why are they admitting me to a master's program? I already have one, right? Um, and it's because like, I was not, like I didn't know what I was doing and they could tell, <laughs> right? They could tell. Um, and then the only reason I think they admitted me to the master's program was because the person I said I would like to work with was Dr. Mitch Chang, who went to grad school with Ate Allison. And I think she called him and said, yo, I have this student. She's a little rough, <laughs> but maybe you can like consider her. Maybe like you can like, you know? And so I think he took me as a master's student to like give me a chance. Um, and that's how I started my doctoral journey. Um, I had no clue what I was doing. I just sort of trusted everything that Ate Allison told me to do. Um, which is, I think that's what you do when you're first gen, right? Um, and then, yeah, and then fortunately, like it worked out, right? But I think it worked out because at that point, it had been the first time I moved away from like the Bay Area, from home, like, and like, it was like high stakes now, right? Like, it, it was like, it was high stakes, like I had to succeed, there was no choice um, not to finish now because I basically had like made this investment, right? And my family was like depending on me. Um, yeah, so that that was that's how. <laughs> wow. I mean, I just want to jump in like a couple of things. Like, I totally know what you're talking. Res yeah. It resonates with with me when we did our spring break. What was it called? Spring break outreach, where we had to do yes. all these workshops. SoCal was outreach. SoCal outreach and then we started right? going to all these people's mansions and I was like I was like wait we're gonna have lunch with your family and then I'm like wait what how whose house is this this is like nice <laughs> like and so you kind of saw how LA Filipinos live and I was like oh some <laughs> LA Filipinos live that went to Berkeley and I was like okay this is totally yeah this is different and then um 
just to kind of continue that line of your, you know, your influence on me was really kind of telling, I don't know if you remember, I emailed yours, I used to uh, talk to you about, okay, like, how do you go to grad school? <laughs> like, what do you do? And I, yeah. I thought it was about like going to, you know, Berkeley was very well-rounded. They had great mm -hmm. sciences, they had great liberal arts, they had great mm -hmm. humanities professors. And I thought that was the same kind of approach that you take to grad school. And you were the one that really kind of, you know, set set me on a path of like, no, you have to look and see who your advisor will be or what kind of resources they have for your particular research interests. And so that caught me into um, graduate school on the right path. So, um, so thank you for that. Yeah, you know, what's funny is like, my friends joke with me all the time. Like, it's not like I don't have mentors. Like after Allison was my mentor, Don Mabalin was my mentor and anything, right? But to a certain extent, I think they were also learning how to be faculty like when I was like trying to navigate, right? So like, um, you know, I always had mentors, but then my mentors were learning how to mentor, I think when I was like receiving mentorship from them. And so I think we just experienced a lot of like mistakes. Like we made a lot of mistakes. I think they shared a lot of advice that maybe wasn't the best advice. And then I experienced a bunch of things I think I could have avoided, right? Um, if I knew better, right? Um, and, you know, and I think because of that, I was just like, I can't let anybody experience this and anything, right? Again, it was just for me, it's just everything's high stakes. Everything's high stakes, right? Like, uh, um, and, and like, I can't, you know, I just got to make sure nobody like, you know, like that was like my my form of like retention, right? Is like, yeah, so. I, I It's funny because when you say that, um, I remember I like plugged into Clubhouse one time, which is, uh, you know, my <laughs> yeah, forever yeah. dream to take CFSC into Clubhouse, <laughs> Lorenzo, no. Um, but you were talking with Kevin and you were like, I think we're like in this category where it's like, you're like middle elders. <laughs> yeah. You know what oh, I mean? what did he like, call it? He called, yeah, what did he call it? There was like a term, like yelders, yeah. young elders. <laughs> yelders. For yelders. Yeah, in that like, you know, um, like Allison and Don, I, I'd put Robin, you know, Robin, like, yeah. you know, um, Rick and Martin, who really, I don't know who they're, yeah, I'm sure there were Filipino, Filipino, Filipina scholars before them, but mm -hmm. not in the way that, like, I feel like I came in, and I don't want to mm -hmm. speak for you, Lorenza, I just felt like when I came into it, I was like, okay, so Robin, you, you done this already, so you got to just, help me now you know and I think yeah. um you know and as a as a yelder I think that you know um it's useful really to to um make clear that like it's not like even if other people have done it your your journey is also still yours you're still gonna even if people are like you know gaming you up on you know whatever how to do what you need to do you also still have to really find your way through it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I think even now it's super important because like, for example, I think I went on the job market like right before the academic job market crashed. Right. Right, like, and so structurally, to, it was like I, I started in 2007. So I was on the market like 2005, 2006. And then the recession hit like right when I started CSUN. Like I remember my first year at CSUN, you know, um, we got furloughed. So my salary got cut by 10%. And I had no idea even like what that meant. Um, and so, and then after that, and at that time, like tenure track jobs still constituted like 75, 80% of academia. And now it's like 50, 50, right? And we know that that's just gonna decline. So, so I can give people all the advice in the world with regards to how to navigate it, the job market. Um, but I don't even think I would be getting a job. <laughs> like if I performed the same way I performed and I like, I think for me, a lot of it was like timing. Um, but like, I'm nowhere like me coming out as a grad student going into like the tenure track path. Mm -hmm. I, I was, I am nowhere as competitive as some of y'all and anything, right? Like you coming out now and anything right like it's so competitive i mean i remember at my when i when i was younger like when i was coming out 
you could still get hired tenure track with zero publications. You could actually get hired ABD, right? And now we know people who like, you know, it's not uncommon to do two postdocs before you land something, right? Because it's such an investment, an institution is not gonna take a risk, right? Unlike somebody that doesn't have like evidence that they're gonna be tenurable. So I can't even imagine, you know, like what it's like now, right? And so like when I'm mentoring like younger folks and anything, right? Um, not in age, but in terms of process, right? Like, um, you know, I always have to acknowledge that what I experience is very different and anything. And, you know, I also try to say that to, you know, share how they have to be, take all their mentors, like advice with a grain of salt and anything. Because sometimes I see some of the things that like elders are telling like some of the younger folks and I'm all, that shit is so dated, right? Like that shit is not gonna help them at all right? Like, what do you mean? Don't take that tenure track because there's a postdoc and anything, right? I'm just like, just again, structurally, like there's such few, like, like, you know, statistically, like it's going to be super difficult for you to land a tenure track job. Why would you not accept that? Right? If, if that's what you want to do for a postdoc, right? So things like that, but yeah. That's great. And I think that one of those things that one of the things that what you're saying kind of makes me think about is how your research, um, you know, even though we've been talking a little bit about mm -hmm. mostly about Filipinos, um, yeah. your research is really, um, you know, relevant and focuses and kind of centers more than just Filipinos, not that it, mm -hmm. uh, it has to be framed that way, but um, yeah. people in different class categories or from different socioeconomic backgrounds or citizenship status. And so yeah. I was wondering, um, well, first I wanna like direct any audience members who are wondering like, oh, like how do I find out more about, you know, um, how to think um, about these ideas about, I guess what you're talking about is, you know, cultural and policy change in relationship mm -hmm. to how race is constructed um, in the academy and outside yeah. of the academy for um, how, it, how it cultivates or shapes Filipino American experience and college student experience. Um, but in, in addition, you know, check out, um, check out uh, Dr. Buena Vista's research on that. I myself have cited it. Um, to put Filipino culture nights into the context in relationship to the structural dynamics of race. And I think that's very important. We can't just focus on the culture um, points of it. Um, and I wanted to use that as kind of, a, kind of a generative point to ask you, like, what are you kind of uh, working on now? Or mm -hmm. uh, what are the questions that you're seeking to address um, in your academic, intellectual, or political work? Um, yeah. 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 No, um, I was, you know, it's funny because I consider myself a Philam scholar, even though like, you know, admittedly, if you look at like my, my CV, like my pubs don't, you know, they're not necessarily explicitly like Filipino, Filipino. Right. Um, but I consider myself like a Filipino Americanist because of the particular perspective I'm bringing to like the issues that I'm like studying. So I think the way that I would like characterize like my work is I, I'm really focused on how like racism and like nativism, right? Like um, and carcerality. It's re it's really about like carcerality, that how they intersect. Those things intersect and really like shape like educational experiences for students of color, but namely Filipinos. But um, I I examine that through the phenomenon, right? Of like undocumented Asian American experiences. So when I'm talking about undocumented Asian American experiences, to me at the center of that is like a Filipino American experience. Um, you know, uh, you know, there's estimates that anywhere from like one in four to one in five Filipinos are undocumented, right? So, you know, it's inherently like a, a Philam issue, right? But I think for the purposes of policy and like publication and, you know, they're, they're always asking to like quote unquote broaden right so um you know so but again like um I, i'm like a filipino americanist who does like like carcerality work right <laughs> like so um so like for the like past like five or six years like i think the thing that i've been really working on is honing in on this concept of like 
colleges and universities is like what I call, um, so this is my concept, y'all. It's called carceral campuses, you know? Um, um, and I, I haven't published, like, I, I'm like, I've been writing this thing for so long, but um, I think it's taking me a long time to actually like write it because I'm actually engaged in the work, right? Like, um, like so, the documenting of this phenomenon is 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 deprior is not prioritized. Instead, it's the actual students who are experiencing the phenomenon which is like prioritized, right? So, like one of the things, places or spaces where I find joy, like in higher ed, is with our Dream Center and working with undocumented students. Um, and so, like this work is like really like theirs, right? So I, I'm working on this thing called carceral campuses. And again, it's like how institutions of higher ed, we always think of them as like these really exceptional spaces, right? They've done so much for us and our families. And, you know, but as we said earlier, before we really formally started the conversation, like they're really toxic spaces, right? And, and so carceral campuses is like this idea that colleges and universities, they, they're inherently designed to like promote criminalization, like surveillance, and like punishment for like like minoritized students, right? Uh, faculty and staff, right? So I think like the the toxic stuff that we experience and anything, right? It's all in context of like a carceral campus, right? So like if we see a policy that's not working for us or our students, we'll speak up and immediately we'll be dismissed or we'll be um, surveilled as like you know rebel rousers or you know what I mean? Like like we're policed, right? Um, I mean I even you know even in talking at faculty meetings around issues around ethnic studies like you know we literally had like the police get called on us right to be observers like in case like we would go right like wily at the faculty meeting it's like really like <laughs> you know like it is it, ridiculous right so that's what i mean so like so you know so i'm, I'm really looking at how like institutions of higher ed are carceral right um and it's, it's really so we can, you know, everyone talks about like the school prison nexus, like in a K through 12 context. And a lot of people don't talk about it in a higher ed context because at that point, like all of us are not even supposed to have access to higher ed. So they, they wouldn't even imagine, right? Like the school prison nexus operating like in context of higher ed, but we know that it, it does. And I think it's really illuminated. For me, it's illuminated through the ways that undocumented students like navigate higher ed and all the things they have to like go through and all the hostilities, the, the macroaggressions, the straight nativism and anything, right? That like, we have to like work with them to like understand and like resist, right? Um, so that's, some work, right? So that's the work that like is ongoing. It's, it's more like my, you know, scholar activist practitioner work. Um, and then the other project I'm really excited about is um, we're just waiting for like, you know, um, like the feedback and hopefully the page proof soon. But um, I, as well as um, two of my really great friends, um, um, Maria Ledesma San Jose and uh, Dimple Jan, who's one of my, my academic best friends, she's at CSUN. And I think we are, you know, coming out with a book on first generation faculty of color um, and the ways that we like create loving spaces and practices in the academy. And it's because everyone treats faculty of color as like this, like, brown and black monolith right like like we're all the same but again it's it's sort of like what i was talking about earlier as an undergrad like i felt like my experience wasn't being represented in the philam discourse and then like as a faculty like in terms of the faculty of color discourse i'm like that's not my experience and anything right and like the people that are like being positioned to speak on my behalf like they don't understand what i'm going through um because you know like when when you when you have experience, you know, when you come from like a, a low income working poor like background and anything, just because you get a stable income doesn't mean that it removes those those issues or those barriers that you experience. In many ways, it exacerbates it um, because there's sort of like this this idea that financial issues should no longer exist when in reality they just get worse <laughs> for myself and everything, right? And then so like, um, you know, I think even navigating as faculty, um, you know, like there, there's a lot of classism, right? Like a racist classism that happens. And um, it's really hard to explain to your colleagues 
like why you can't go to that conference or why you still have to have roommates or why, um, you know what I mean? Just like why you can't buy your regalia until 10 years later and then only do it because, you know, you got homies who got the like downtown LA hookup and we got like off market regalia. <laughs> I always tell that story to, to grad students and I think about don't buy it from the university. There's like folks who do that on the side, you get it half off. And we went in and everything, right? Like, um, you know, another Philam scholar, Dr. Ed Kurameng, he's like, hey, you want in? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but it was literally 10 years after. It was 10 years after I graduated that I got my regalia because it was like, you know, off market. <laughs> Because it costs like $300 regular price, right? It's no, like, it, no, no. It costs like almost a thousand, yo. <gasps> yeah, for the now? doctoral regalia. Like, I don't know, like how, like, yeah. Like, it's like, it's like, like anywhere from like seven to like a thousand dollars, depending on whatever. And at the time when I graduated, I couldn't justify buying it because it was literally the same amount as my rent and anything, right? So I was just like, okay, do I buy this regalia so like my family can be happy because I'm performing? Like, you know what I mean? Like I made it? Or do I save that money and literally have it for like ne next month's rent? I chose rent, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and so, yeah. Um, and you only wear that shit once a year. Again, again, like when you have proletariat thinking, that's the kind of decisions you make. You just have a different relationship to capital, you know, and that's what has, you know, sort of driven a lot of the decisions I make. But anyway, so, so my other project is the stuff on like first gen faculty, but really how like we try to create like these alternative spaces because higher ed is so toxic. And like, I, I see so many folks of color pursue higher ed for like really noble reasons, but then but then they're trained and then they're socialized and then they enact the trauma that their mentors experienced, right? And then they perpetuate that trauma on the people they're mentoring. And I'm just like, like, why are you doing that when, you when you're smarter than that, right? Um, and so I really wanna take that work with like first gen faculty and really bring it to like, um, you know, I, I was just talking to my friend. Yeah, I'm giving all my ideas away. And that's the other thing that's wrong with me is like, I don't, I like, I, you know, I just give my ideas away. Um, but uh, I want to work on how educators of color engage in love and love making, like, like in the institution and how it's so necessary to like transform like the worst aspects of like education. Uh, um, you know, I think like a future goal, I, actually a future goal of mine is to like move away from the academy you know, like, you know, Valerie, I think you mentioned it earlier with someone you're mentoring, but my future goal is to actually be a wellness practitioner. Like I want to be a therapist and anything, right? But I want to, I want to practice therapy for academics um, and anything, right? Like I want to use it as a mechanism for fac faculty of color retention. Right? I also love that idea. I, I think more and more um, I've been talking with women of color in the academia mm -hmm. and after folks get full like you have Tracy mm -hmm. um the ability to radically imagine a future that isn't tethered to the academia it's like it's kind of like my favorite thing right now to talk yeah. with um tenured and full professor women of color who are like I'm gonna leave and <laughs> yeah. you know reinvest in this different way right mm -hmm. and not not leave in 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 spite of, and maybe sometimes, yes, um, but leave and imagine up um, a different way of being and using the these skills that we have now um, in, in, in a different way. Um, and I love that because then it, it promises me a future where I can also imagine something different for me um, mm -hmm. and my family too, you know, um, yeah. so yeah, let's do it. Wellness practitioner. Well, I think <laughs> it's it, really, like jump roper. Yeah. Well, that's the problem with academics is that it becomes an identity. Like it's literally like an identity. And so there, you know, academics from a very young age are probably told over and over and over. They're like exceptional. Right. And then shit happens to them in the academy. And then they internalize it rather than having this larger structural analysis that they were never meant to be there in the first place. Right. Um, and, and so but I think for me, like being a professor, it's a fucking job. That's it. 
<laughs> right? Like I love it. It's fun and everything, right? But it's in the, at the end of the day, it just pays my bills and enables me to support my family. That's it. If it didn't do that, I probably would do something else and everything, right? And I think the ability to not internalize like an identity, like that, like my, my value or my worth is tied to like this profession, like it's really liberating. And I wish, I wish that more academics of color would, would do that. But, you know, it's, you know, acad academia is like a breeding ground for like narcissists, right? And narcissism. Yeah. 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 And I, and I also think that like um, a big part of like that identity building for academics that can lead to sometimes um, just painful experiences mm -hmm. is that yeah. um, folks think about their profession, whatever discipline they are, like, you know, that that's their whole activism, right? That there is, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and, and I think that's fine. If your classroom is your site of struggle and activism, that's cool. Like make that meaningful. And I think it's also painful when, you know, that classroom, that institution doesn't love you. And then mm -hmm. therefore you have this sort of rot relationship yeah. to it, right? Because you try and bring in your whole self to it. And then, you know, over and again, you know, um, institutions are like disavowing you left and right. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think we are also, I also want to think about um, the words of in, in the collective, right? As we're like mm -hmm. trying to reconsider um, our work in, in critical Filipinx studies collective. Yeah. For you, and you've said, you said this earlier, you know, you're mm -hmm. like a, you know, Filipino, Filipinx American studies scholar. Um, what does that, what do those words mean to you? What is that like collection of like critical Filipino, Filipina, Filipinx studies mean to you in yeah. your everyday as a scholar, a professor, an activist, an ally? You know, I was talking, I, I did this talk at UCLA. They hosted like this research symposium for grad students for the first time. And it was, it was kind of amazing because I wish I had that space. And so one of the things I've been thinking about is like, what does it actually mean to be a Philam scholar? Like, I don't want to essentialize and limit Philam scholars, quote unquote limit, right? Um, to only doing Philam work. Right, and I don't think that's a limitation. I think it's it's a beautiful thing, um, but I think some people feel sort of um, I don't know. They feel like they have to do that. I'm like, hey, you don't, right? Um, but I think for regardless of what your work is, I think a like a critical Filipinx studies like what it does is it promotes like an agenda that's grounded in I always say this dangerous dangerously relevant work. Right. So there's going to be some like material impact that your work has. Right. And I think Philam scholars are just super good at that. Like we're so like, I think what we're studying has different stakes because we've been so excluded from like the academy for like so long that a lot of the early work and I think contemporary work is just about documenting what it means to be Filipino American, right? And then I feel like, you know, uh, the next generation, they're just gonna come out with like, like wild topics because they have the freedom to now, right? Like they actually have people they can cite. Like you both have books that people can cite. And just five, 10 years ago, like that was not possible, right? Um, and so, I, I call like Philam critical Filipinx studies to me is one that promotes dangerously relevant work. And like, so like the way that there's two ways that sort of came to that idea, right? Like, um, like, so to be critical, for example, or dangerously relevant, it's like your mom should be able to like <laughs> engage with your work to a certain degree. It doesn't mean that they're going to adopt like the language or like the analysis, or, but they, they should just be able to engage with it. And I remember like, like when I shared my dissertation and that shit was hella long, it was like 300 plus pages, right? Um, I just thought that's what you had to do. And I realized, no, you can write like 150, 200 work, like page dissertation, it'd be fine, right? But I remember I gave it to my mom. She actually read it. And then when I asked her what she thought, she was like straight up already knew that. <laughs> like, not even like, not even like trying to be like, oh, that shit was good. Oh, I really like this part. She just like already knew that. 
Dang. No, like straight. My parents are like cold blooded, y'all. Anything. And then my dad was like, you straight spent all that time in school to make a starting salary that like basically he made like with a high school education. Right. And and so again, it's that proletariat shit. Right. And, And so for me, like they were basically like giving me like in their way, like a loving critique. Um, that what I studied had no impact on their material reality at that time, right? Um, and it was a revelation, like regarding like what I should, how I should shape my time in the academy. Like it was a big hard check, <laughs> like the hell it checked me, right? Um, like my work should be about engaging, like in work, right? That actually has material impact on people's everyday living, right? And their overall quality of life. And unless your work does that, you know, like, you know, more power to you and anything, right? But like, that's just not the work that I do, right? Um, and I think this, like, again, it was like a revelation, right? Um, and I think it was cemented, like, as a practice, right? Like, it, um, when I met other first gen working class, like, Filipino scholars, like, uh, you know, I always mentioned Dr. Dean Sarnilio, like we were just a, a couple of first gen poor Filipinos at UCLA, like, like, who would just fucking like sit there and talk shit. <laughs> That's all we would do and everything, right? It was hilarious. And so like our experiences as like Filipinos simply were like, it wasn't like, again, like our experiences weren't central to like the dominant Philam narrative. Um, and so I think but us seeing each other and being with each other, we just like emboldened ourselves to be really confident in our work and write about our community the way that we experienced it. And so for me, that's what a critical Philippinex studies is, right? Is that it's, um, if your work has like material impact on people's quality of life and or it's offering or documenting like the way that, you know, you experience Filipino Americanness then like keep going right um yeah maybe um we can pick pick up off of that and kind of touch on like how context might shape your ability or inability Mm -hmm. to do the type of work that you do and i guess what i'm trying to get at is like the different contexts of fields or interdisciplines and disciplines and i know that's something that me myself and a lot of other academics find Mm -hmm. confusing like what's an interdiscipline versus a discipline and how is ethnic studies versus not versus but ethnic studies education history sociology because a lot of the non-critical filipino studies came out comes out of whatever area studies or english or history Mm -hmm. and so those have different quote-unquote rules so maybe you can take us through your experience um how it um, aligns with your mission or your intellectual yeah. work in particular mm-hmm. to, in, in relationship because you have been part of ethnic studies and education yeah. in, diff- in your training. Right. You know, for me, it is about the field, but um, it's, it's both about the field in which you decide to build your community in, right? But it's also about the institution where you decide to locate yourself, right? Um, And then so for me, fortunately, the things that I was interested in, like, um, you know, was located, like people were doing the work in ethnic studies, and they're doing the work in education. And those are both considered, quote, unquote, applied fields, or at least at one point in time, right, like they're considered applied fields. And so the idea of you doing work or scholarship that's not connected to like, practice, anything right is you know I think it's um it's like poo-pooed on right <laughs> like people are like mm. and I think right so like our my fields education and ethnic studies like they inherently inherently doesn't mean everyone practices this but they inherently value a scholar practitioner research agenda and anything right what made it even easier is I you know I got hired at a Cal State Cal State Northridge and um you know, in ethnic studies, in an ethnic studies department, right? So we have autonomy to determine what are our retention and tenure and promotion guidelines. And and fortunately, my guidelines were really, I would articulate as quote unquote flexible. 
and anything, right? So like they valued collaborative co-authored work the same as like a solo authored piece, right? They valued a report that would be disseminated like nationwide to like, you know, like APIDA communities as much as they valued uh, a, a journal article that wasn't open access, right? And, and because of that infrastructure, I took full advantage of try, you know, I, 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 I've done this talk a few times, but my approach to the academy has always been about redistribution. Anything because where I'm located provided me an infrastructure where I did not have to practice like the typical capitalistic like approach to my career. Anything for me it became all about redistribution of wealth. And anything if I got offered like and that's the thing a lot of folks don't realize and you guys are probably experiencing this now in the beginning when you start your writing journey and you, you start to publish as a scholar you're fighting you're fighting for opportunities to actually get documented like you know for people to you know publish your work etc then as soon as you do a few you get tenure whatever they, people start inviting you Right, people start inviting you to contribute your perspective and your work, and then and so I think a lot of people don't talk about that openly and anything. Right, people want to like believe that like public publishing is like all merit based, and it's not. And I think it's who you know, it's your network, it's what your work is, it's like is it your work hot at the time? Is your work needed at the time? It's all these different like sort of factors that that play in. And so for me, as I got more and more opportunities to publish, I'm like I actually don't need it for my trajectory, let me get somebody on it, right? Or let me give it away, um, you know what I mean? Um, but I, again, it's because the infrastructure I was provided being in an ethnic autonomous ethnic studies department at a comprehensive institution where we have to do research, teaching and service, right? So it's not just scholarship that's valued, it's, you know, everything else too. Um, and so, yeah, I always tell people like, think about like the CSUs, think about the community colleges, because if you actually really want to do that kind of like community engaged work, locate yourself in an institution, like in a, in a home that like, like loves you the way that you are, rather than trying to like, you know, develop a relationship with somebody who's just has no flexibility to change, right? <laughs> like. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if that answers uh, your question, but uh, context is really important. Um, but you know, again, it goes back to like, I know people need jobs and anything, right? But like, I don't know, like, do you really want to go somewhere where they don't love you? Like, or there's no potential for love, you know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that in a relationship, or maybe you would, and that's why you're like, where you're at. Right, like you haven't had enough like people to love you, to hold you, to say that you don't have to do this, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I think I, you're right. Like um, having more conversations about um, these things, like what what you're saying, it's not just the field, it's not just the mm -hmm. profession, but it's also the particular institution that. Mm -hmm like that word that you said, like autonomy, like really kind of, I think, um, highlights, like, I guess the playing field is not the same wherever you go, yeah. right? There are different yep. types of referees or different, I don't want to use this personality. Okay, the, dip, the ocean is not the same wherever you go. There's different depth, <laughs> there are different animals and predators and things. And so you have to really pay attention to what kinds of, what part of the ocean you're swimming in. Yeah, yeah, completely. And yeah. And I think in, in our la in the last question that we want to ask you, um, holding on to that idea around like acknowledging yourself, your relationship to like what kind of love community you need, what are your your sites of hope? Yeah, um, I mean, you, you too, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like my sites of hope are basically chosen family, right? Like that I'm surrounded by and like, our willingness to really challenge each other and to not be fucked up, <laughs> right? Like you need people to tell you like you're fucking up. And if you don't have those people around you, like you, you need to get those people. Uh, freedom, I don't know you guys, Freedom, um, um, Sham, he, you know, he talks about like how he has a committee, 
right? Like uh, he calls it his committee of life, right? And um, and he always jokes, he's like, yeah, you know, like you're on my committee. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. You need people to like basically guide you, you know, when there's like sort of hard decisions to be made, et cetera, right? Um, and I think like my community is dope. We're not perfect, but I think like we we all embody like like abolitionists and like transformative justice approaches to like just how we live, right? So like we know that, you know, dismantling like all the like the white supremacy, right? Um, we know that that's not probably gonna occur in our lifetime, right? Like I think we've already sort of come to terms with that, um, but we like the process of trying, <laughs> right? So I think like the friends that I have, anything, I think we always sort of lovingly just sort of like try to be honest with each other. And like, we try to figure out how do we reduce harm Right, I think that's like a key tenet in like sort of like TJ practices or abolitionist practices is that we know that we can't abolishing the harm is going to be a really really long time. But in the meanwhile, how can we work together to reduce it, right, or reduce the harm potential, right? Um, and, and again, like you know, um, what's been really dope as like a Philam scholar to be mentored by Philam scholars like Ate Allison is like the multi-generational mentoring that I think has happened. So like, you know, I've had students from CSUN that I'm like, you gotta go to SF State, you know what I mean? And then they've been mentored by Ate Allison, right? And then so it's dope because it's like, Ate Allison was my mentor and then I mentored a student and then that student got mentored by Ate Allison. And then now there's like another, like, you know, and now like, so, at one point it was just sort of like those three generations and now there's a fourth, right? And I'm like, oh, one, I'm getting hella old, but two, that's hella dope that like the, the network is like this web, right? Um, and, you know, it it's, it's, I think in terms of our community, it's still really small. And I just think that that multi-generational like mentoring is super necessary, but it's what feeds me too, right? So sometimes people are surprised that like, they're like, you know, like sometimes scholars will like young scholars, they'll like reach out to me and then they'll just like, oh, you know, um, just want to say like, you know, I read your piece or I like your work or whatever. And I'm and I'll always reply back. I'm like, oh, you want to go get boba <laughs> or you want to talk? And I think they're always like, 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 like so surprised and anything. Right. Um, and I'm like, one, you shouldn't be surprised. But like two, it's like people don't realize I need that interaction, too. Right. That's like my that's my site of hope and anything. Right. Like that the community is growing and like I'm going to have more like co-conspirators to have my back when shit goes down and everything. Right. Um, yeah. So that and then, you know, my, my child and anything. me and my child have a really contentious relationship. Like, you know what I mean? Mothering is like not easy at all. But like we also have like the best relationship. Um, and I just, I just think it's like, like he's kind of like an ethnic studies experiment to me, like an ethnic studies, like child raising experiment. I just keep trying to challenge like what kids can be exposed to at that. He's five now, right? And I'm saying he because he's chosen his gender as boy, and for a long time, like so. This is like one of it. Like it's amazing. Like eco. Like we have this conversation frequently, and you know, and he'll be like what gender am I today I'm like I don't know baby what gender do you want to be today and he's like I think I'm boy and anything right and I'm just like he's five but we've been having that conversation since he's been three right and I'm just like like yeah if you just talk to kids like you know as if they're completely capable of understanding like you know these like crazy ideas and anything right that are not crazy they're just ideas they're critical and anything right they'll pick up on things and they'll 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 have the the capability the ability to sort of like process them like in their own ways right um but you know he eco came to terms that he no longer for example liked woody from toy story because he started to really develop like this analysis of settler colonialism. Like, like, like le legit, like, I mean, in the beginning where I'm like, oh, you know, Woody, you know, cowboys, they, they participate, like, you know, like they participate in the genocide of indigenous people. And, you know, he would really think about it, right? <laughs> like, what does that mean? <laughs> and then now he's just like, oh, you know, he sees the Woody toy, he's like, oh, 
I don't like Woody any longer. He's like a, he's like a colonizer, you know? And like, you know, he, he takes land away and like, you know, and just like, he'll just say these things and he's not wrong, like whether or not he fully comprehends it, I don't know. But like when he gets to the age where that level of analysis is expected to occur, like he'll get it. Um, you know, and, and so like, I find hope in like that experiment. <laughs> I, yeah, I also like how, um, I, I also think, you know, with a lot of academic kids, right? Like, you know, I think that like, you know, Val, you know, your own kids, you know, I know we're like really trying to be intentional for uh, breaking the cycles of trauma that like, you know, that we've experienced, right? So like, I think like with Phil Ams, you know, like body image, dysmorphia, like, you know, like self-hate, like that, that stuff is very real, I think, among our generation still anything right and I think with like our kids I really see like an active resistance against it and anything right and so like eco and it, I have to like watch myself because you know all I've been teaching him and anything right is like black is beautiful brown is beautiful and on their own they decided that white wasn't <laughs> right I'm like, no 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 okay let's take it a step back like I don't want you to like you know, get in trouble at school and anything, right? I had to talk about everyone. There's beauty in everyone and everything, but black is beautiful, brown is beautiful. And it's really crazy because like, I see like his preference for friends and, and the little, you know, the people that he like, you know, likes, they're all dark and anything, right? Like they're all dark. Like he, he perceives himself as dark. I'm all fool, you're hella light-skinned like me and anything. We oh. just think we're, we think we're darker than we are, right? But like, he's like, I'm so brown and I'm so beautiful. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> but I'm like, yes, baby. Yes, I'm gonna bring you out into the beach a lot, a lot more, you know? Um, but like that kind of, like those moments, like those are the moments where I'm just like, okay, like I'm doing good things. You know, um, let me keep going. Um, you know, there, there's potential. There's potential, like in the next generation, right? Um, so yeah. yeah. Well, thank yeah. you, Tracy. I just want to say thank you for reminding us to be dangerously relevant and yes. helping us really think about um, charting our own path with love and love making in. Um, in CFSC, you know, you're a Yelder and we always hold you <laughs> in this collective as, you know, someone who we want to continue to engage your work and your mm -hmm. activism and just your stories. So we just yeah. want to thank you so much. And I want to oh, do one point of uh, uh -huh. connection is that when we had our meeting at AAAS mm -hmm. back, back in the day, when we mm -hmm. went over all of that con the constitution or something, that was on Valentine's Day, I think. Oh, oh. I think so I think That's so I'm funny. not sure I remember it as something like that but Probably. yeah so so it's great to to reconnect with everybody in in that kind of um similar way but thank you Tracy thank you Dr. thank you uh, Vista. thank you I miss y'all I'm happy that y'all are you know pushing the field yeah so and to our next time together thank you hey thank you bye everyone